It's March 1st. It's 2015. Michael Hutchinson is on his way to Chicago. And he sent a message to you. It says, well, LCMF, you managed to spank my rear into a man of God. Equip me for duty and give me a platform. You even unstopped the corroded tear duct of my eyes. For that, I will always love you and consider you my closest friends. I love that this church values what we get to do outside the walls. I love that this community of believers cares about the nations. The very spirit of Christ is one that is centrifugal. He will always take you from an inward revival to an outward expression. And where you don't see an outward expression, it's because you've not had the inward revival. That's okay. You're going to get a chance. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Justin Johnson from the King's Harvest Fellowship in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, sends you greetings. They are ever preparing to send workers into the harvest field to join us in our labors. They're experiencing miracles at the Arising Church. Little Grayson just had his life saved at a building project, and his daddy is praising God. Our friends in Virginia and Washington, D.C. are preparing for a one association meeting there in March, and they send you their greetings. Church, you are no longer alone. We're not just an eclectic group of believers crammed into our storefront. We are a part of the body of Christ. It may look as if these are dark days for the church. There are men who are cutting off heads, but there were in the first century as well. There are men who are lighting other men on fire, but the emperors of the world were doing that in the first century. We live in a day when a distinction is again being made between the righteous and the unrighteous. If you've been tempted to think that the church is in a poor state, I'm going to ask you to reassess what is actually the church. Those who are filled with the Spirit of God and His priorities and His passions and His love, those are the church. And the gates of hell will never prevail against them. By the way, Dennis from 3C Life in Romania sends you greetings as well. And he is teaching the book of Revelation to people there as their eyes are becoming opened with excitement. I stand before you today humbled. It's an easy thing for a pastor to say. It's kind of the polite way to start a service, whether it's true or not. But when I think about Curtis Carter delivering a message called Divine Interruption, about how to handle setbacks and hear from God, when I think of Alex Adarmas sharing a message, Can You Hear Me Now? Talking about those crushing moments in your life and what is still true about you and what the Lord is still speaking to you. When I hear Wade Sutherland encourage us about whose report will you believe, we are not alone any longer. Know this, God does not need you. He's doing just fine without you. But he loves you. And he desires to use you to the fullest possibility. And if you don't do it, deliverance will come through someone else. 
but it ought to be your great joy to reciprocate his love shed abroad in your life by serving him all of your life. I stand before you humbled because you don't need me, but it is my very great joy to reciprocate his love in my life by serving you. Can y'all say amen to that? This is going to be a special Sunday. I do want to warn you, we are approaching Easter, and Easter is a service that we will no longer consider about us. It will be about the people that you bring. So I want to encourage you to bring people for that. This next Wednesday and this next Sunday, Pastor Sutherland will be preaching, and it will be amazing. I'm looking forward to being fed from heaven. March 11th and 15th, I'm going to address the state of the world, the state of the nation, and the state of the church. And when I say that it will be fiery, it will be convicting, and we might hide under our seats. It's not an exaggeration. So if you're into that kind of thing, mark it on your calendar. Today, our message is called Covenant and First Century Judaism. Covenant in first century Judaism. If you're the note-taking kind, that would be the first thing you would want to write down. So in the Bible, the word covenant shows up in the English language 297 times and even more in Hebrew. Many times it's referred to without using that exact word, but 297 times that word shows up. That's pretty impressive when you consider there's only 66 books. When you begin to break it down, 264 times the word covenant shows up in the Older Testament, 33 times in the Newer Testament. Turn with me to Genesis 17 and let's examine one of its uses. What an awesome thing when the living God reveals himself to a man. I want to tell you that there is no separation between Older Covenant and Newer Covenant. A man named Marcion proposed such an idea in the second century that the Old Testament God was somehow different than the New Testament God, that the Newer Testament, which at the time was being canonized, was more important than the Older Testament, and the early church fathers branded him a heretic and threw him out of Christendom because the idea was abhorrent to them. They believed in the continuity of Scripture. They believed in a revelation of God that began with Adam and ended in the book of Revelation. They believed that there was one consistent message. I want you to hear when God is speaking to Abraham in the year 2000 in B.C. that he is saying essentially the same thing to you today. This is Genesis 17 in verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. One way to translate this is El Shidei, the God who is more than enough. Walk before me and be blameless. (laughs) If I told you to be blameless, would you look at me and say, is that all? (laughs) I I thought you were going to ask something hard. That, I got it. (laughs) Because if you said that, I'd say, really, can I talk to your wife for a minute and find out if it's true? (laughs) This is why God announces himself as the God who is more than enough. He can make you blameless. He can credit it with you, but it doesn't alleviate your need to walk in what he's credited you with. He said, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. 
We live in a day when we're said that if you prayed, if you attended a right church, or if you ate a Eucharist, you're blameless and that's all there is. But the God Almighty that appeared to Abraham calls him righteous and then tells him to walk in that righteousness. This church is aiming to improve our walk. I'd even like to have a little Holy Ghost swagger. Maybe you need some gait training this morning. Maybe your walk does not match your profession of faith. This is not our chance to stone you with hymnals. We don't even have them. This is a chance for us to honestly examine what the Scripture says and measure our lives against it, that at the end of the age we might be found pleasing to our God. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. God has already been speaking to Abraham since Genesis 12. This is not the first time the covenant shows up. It's simply the first time he confirms the covenant to him in this chapter. Do you know how many times he uses the word covenant in Genesis 17 alone? 14 times. Suffice it to say God is a covenant-keeping God. He's not like us. If he makes a promise, he makes good on that promise. So we better know what the promises of God are. Somebody say amen. Amen. I was recently on a cruise ship. I can't imagine what it would have been like if I didn't know that all of that food was free. Of course, it's not really free. A price had to be paid in advance. But if the price was paid in advance, then it's all mine. And I took full advantage of it. So much so that my waistline has actually moved. It stopped expanding and just moved. (laughs) God introduces himself to humanity as the God who is more than enough. He introduces himself to humanity as a covenant-keeping God. As you move through the scripture, you may be familiar with things like Exodus 2. Look at Exodus 2, starting in verse 24. Say there when you were there. In Exodus 2, in verse 24, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. When you're in covenant with someone, you are concerned about their welfare. The most abused covenant in the world is probably the covenant with our God. The second most abused is our covenant with our spouse. But this is the one that most people are most familiar with. How do you abuse a covenant with God? How do you abuse a covenant with your spouse? When you stop caring more about their welfare than your own. That is how we abuse it. Consequently, when Jesus came and taught us how to walk in right standing with God, he told us that we had to care about each other more than ourselves. He told us that an expression of love for God showed up in an expression of love towards our fellow man. Oh, how Christianity has often strayed from those principles. God was in covenant with his people, so when they were on hard times, he was concerned about them. Somebody say, God's concerned about us. And when he's concerned, he doesn't stop there. He reached down, he acts, he liberates. And how did he do it? He used a man named Moses. And when he used Moses, let's just say we're speaking about Exodus 3, where Moses and God are having a conversation, where he said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. And I am concerned about them, so I have now come. I will reach down 
and I will raise them up. This is in essence the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was concerned about our position. So he reached down to raise us up. How many of you are married? Raise your married finger, your wedding ring hand. How about that? If your wife falls down and you turn and laugh at her, what uh, what does that say about you? You are in covenant with her. Oh, you'll love this one, men. How many of you have two-story houses? Raise your hand if you have a two-story house. You hear something downstairs in the middle of the night. So you do the chivalrous thing. Honey, go see what that is. (laughs) Why is that laughable? It is laughable. Why is it laughable, though? Because we know even in Gentile, pagan society, that it is the husband's job to show concern for the wife's welfare and not his alone. She reciprocates what he demonstrates. We know this through society. It used to be stronger. We opened doors. We laid down coats over puddles. And I wish those days were still here because in all of our fighting to create equality, which God created when he invested his son in the woman Mary, it didn't need to be fought for. It was already there. What we've done is made... Men and women equally pigs. They say there's 50 shades of gray. I say there is black and there is white. We're a covenant people. We serve a covenant-keeping God. And God is as concerned about his people as a righteous, holy husband is concerned about his wife. And he wouldn't be a very good God if he wasn't. Because these are his promises. Church, I just want to tell you about the abuse that we see going on in the world toward Christianity at the moment. If you were walking in Walmart and my wife was being abused in the parking lot, and I found out you walked by, it would not just be the assailant I would be looking for. It would also be you. We cannot turn a deaf ear to the cries of the poor in the world. The Proverbs tell us if you turn a deaf ear to the cries of the poor, God will turn a deaf ear to you. Do you know why? He's a covenant-keeping God. He cares. Covenants are a big deal to him. So when he saw Israel suffering under Egypt's hand, he remembered his covenant. Turn with me to Exodus 19. We're working from left to right in your Bible. In Exodus 19, look at this passage with me. It'll be the fourth verse. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Why? Because they were abusing God's bride. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt. I'm just curious. If Egypt incurred God's wrath because they were abusing God's people, what do you think will happen to any other nation that abuses God's people? Regardless of what political power is in vogue. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. It's funny, in Israelite history, this constituted a kind of proposal a kind of marriage promise that among all the people, the Jewish people would be the chosen people on the planet and that if they walked with their God, they would be his very favorite. Consequently, the rest of the nations of the world have hated them. 
And our theologians have often emphasized the degree to which they did not keep the commands of God. And all of that is true. Of course, it's true about you as well. But he made a covenant. He made a covenant with Israel, and he included those of you who love Jesus Christ in that covenant, and he is a covenant-keeping God. When men and women stand at an altar, it's very often that when they give their vows to each other, they say, richer or poor. They say, better or worse. They promise that no matter what the circumstances are, their love is eternal. Is that not true? Did any of you stand at an altar and say, as long as you stay rippled with muscles... As long as our bank account is always in the positive, because that would make you a prostitute. We don't do that. We love for the sake of simply reciprocating what God has shown us. In other words, 1 John says we love because he first loved us. He demonstrated it, and now we reciprocate it. Our love is to be a selfless love. How are you doing with that? When you think on these things, understand that in the Bible, much of the covenant language mirrored the marriage language. Turn with me to Matthew. I want to show you the first time the word covenant appears in the New Testament. In Matthew, the 26th chapter, say there when you were there. This is right before the hymn that we first sang today. In Matthew, the 26th chapter and the 28th. Verse. 27th verse. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine, from now until the day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. When they had finished, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. One of the things that we find out is that at the Passover, while Jesus is doing this, what we call the Last Supper, this meal had become dualistic in Jewish society. It, of course, meant the day that they crossed from death to life. It, of course, meant the day that they were liberated from the oppressor and adopted as sons. But it also had a familiar ring to every married couple because it was also proposal language. When God called Israel out of Egypt, they viewed it as a betrothal. And when, they gave, when he gave them his commandments at Mount Sinai, they viewed it as a wedding. All of the ways that we think about our relationship with the Lord. How often do you compare it to your marriage relationship? Let us think about it this way for a moment. Caleb and Susanna are married. They have beautiful children. They're excited about each other. If Caleb only showed up to speak with his wife on Wednesday and Sunday, how long do you think she would be happy with it? If... Justin and Ella, who are happily married, got a beautiful baby that's going to be here soon. I was rooting for Titus Magnus. <laughs> but I think we're going to get a little girl, beautiful little girl. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. So there's still hope for Titus Magnus. 
If Ella thought Justin was amazing, loved him, wanted his picture, even though he's put on some marriage weight, right next to their bed, but had alongside that picture previous boyfriends, how do you think Justin would feel about that? Are you beginning to understand some of the commandments then? You shall have no gods besides me. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. You know, what our God is after is the kind of devotion that our marriage covenants are supposed to display. There is such an enormous gulf between Exodus 19, you will be for me a treasured possession, and Matthew 26, in this cup we have redemption, that we don't understand, and it's because we don't understand first century Judaism. What began to happen in Judaism is as they studied and revered the patriarchs, as they looked at their history, it formed for them the basis for all of their actions and all of their lives. So when they looked at how do we become married, they believed that it had to be arranged. That's reprehensible to the teenage community in America. It becomes less reprehensible the older you get. (laughs) How many of you would like to pick your, your children's spouse? Yes. It's working just fine for them in India. The ancient marriage covenant began with a process called the Shirukin. Now, if those words are foreign to you, that's okay. It's the principle that we're after here. All marriages had to be arranged. And why did they have to be arranged? Because when Abraham wanted his son to be married, the promised son, Isaac, he sent out Eleazar. In Genesis 24, 1 through 4, we can see that passage. We'll put it on the screen for you. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. But you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now, on one level, this is just a man who understands the promise of God was to a specific family. It had to start with a specific family and then it would grow to include the nations. But on another level, there is something hinted at here. When you're looking for a spouse for your children in the ancient world, you wanted to know that that spouse was in love with the king in the same way your children were. And the reason that you wanted that was because the only thing that mattered was producing offspring that would kick in the gates of hell, producing offspring that would advance God's agenda on the earth, Producing offspring that would like, be like arrows in the hands of a warrior. That is what mattered. Today, what matters to us is their wealth, their socioeconomic status, their level of education. I would take a poor man or woman that was rich in faith over a rich man or woman that had no faith. It's not a catch, ladies, to find a doctor or a lawyer. It's a catch to find somebody who loves Jesus more than he loves his own life because that's the only way in which he will love you more than himself. So the Shidokin was the beginning of the arrangement process. And when you look at the Shidokin, 
The question becomes, who should go arrange this? In Genesis 24, God sent, or Abraham sent, his chief steward. His name was Eleazar. It meant God the Comforter, a title that most people would associate with the Holy Spirit of God. So in the very natural sense, a father simply sent a very trusted servant. That very trusted servant went out and found the most appropriate bride. In a very spiritual sense, you cannot be wed to the King of Kings unless it is the work of the Holy Spirit making the arrangement. If you believe that at some point in your life you will simply pray an intellectual prayer and be saved, you are sadly deceived. If you believe that you can have a priest come wave his dainty little hand over you and be saved, you are sadly deceived. The truth is is that the entirety of Bible history teaches you cannot come to the Father unless the Spirit draw you. You can find that succinctly put in John 6, 44. To the Jews, this was a beautiful time. They often began thinking about the arrangements of a marriage from birth. I remember when my own son was still inside of my wife. The Lord spoke to my wife. He spoke to me. We had a name. It was not a name that we had heard anywhere else. It was not a name that anyone in our families had. It was not a name that we had ever encountered anywhere other than the Bible. The Lord spoke to me the name Judah, and I was scared to tell her. <laughs> had it been Titus Magnus, be different. And when I said, honey, I believe the Lord wants us to name our son, <clears throat> she said, is it Judah? I said, it is. We laid hands on our belly and began praying then that somewhere in the world God would raise up someone who loved the Lord as much as he would be raised to love the Lord. That's an amazing thing. Every parent should want this for their children. If you have fallen into the trap of choosing worldly criteria, you have truly fallen into a trap. We live in the days that Matthew 24 says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Understand that it's not enough to have a partial commitment to the Lord. It's not enough to be kind of warming to the Lord. It's not enough to intellectually ascend to the Lord. If you do not have inside of you a burning passion that cannot be concealed for Jesus, then not me, you should question your salvation. If what you hear me saying is you're not good enough, understand none of us are good enough. I'm saying some of us are simply in covenant, and he's good enough. When you think on such subjects, Matthew 24, starting in verse 52, is an interesting part of the process. No, not Matthew 24, Genesis 24, verse 52. Matthew 24, 52 is another one. <laughs> when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver and jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave costly gifts to her brother and her mother. When you're thinking on this passage, understand that in Judaism, a servant was sent. 
He was called a Shad Khan. His job was to arrange the process called the Shudukin. And he would go and he would find an appropriate bride. When he found the appropriate bride, two things would begin to happen. They would begin to work out what was called the marriage contract. These are the basis for our vows today. They would outline who would be treated how. In other words, when God said in the first four commandments, you shall have no gods beside me. When he says, um, you will not have graven images. When he says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, Or the third commandment, when he says, uh, you will not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He's outlining how he would be treated as a husband. I want spiritual monogamy. (laughs) Anybody in here disagree with that concept? If so, you're obviously single. He said, I don't even want their pictures around. In fact, now that we're going to share a name, it's important to me that you don't bounce checks. It's important to me that you don't ruin the only name that we will have for the rest of our lives. How you bear the name Christian is an important thing. He said, at least one day a week, we're going to throw everybody else out of the house and it's just you and I, okay? That's the only one that you men were nodding on. Why is that? (laughs) Then when we move through the next six commandments, you'll honor your father and mother. That's always tested as soon as you're married. Then we work to how you'll treat the rest of humanity. We're not going to murder, lie, covet, steal, all of those things. These are the requirements for the bride and the groom. This servant called a Shad Khan he would be speaking with her family saying, this is what my master is like. I want to give you tokens of the marriage age now, gifts. He gave her bracelets. She would be divinely working in her hands. He gave her a gold earring. Sorry, parents, right in the nose. She would be divinely led. He gave them gifts as well. Any loss that you feel like you are suffering is not worth comparing to the kingdom of God. This was the idea. This was the concept. And Judaism picked up on it, so they arranged their marriages. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11.2, put that on the screen, the apostle Paul, when speaking about the church, said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure Virgin to him. The Shad Khan's job was to make sure that the man's reputation was in fact holy and true. That the bride's reputation was in fact pure and true. In other words, they had a time period where they were simply promised to each other and they had not even met. Oh, single people, hear me. There is somebody walking the earth right now that will be your covenant partner for life. And you are promised to them even before you've met them. And what you do with your body now does matter, male and female. It matters greatly. There is no worse feeling in the world than having your heart joined to someone and then torn away. The word adultery does not mean Two married people that are fornicating. That is not what it means. It means an awful tearing. It's when your heart has become attached to something through physical activity and now it is being ripped away and you are never meant to endure it. 
Eleazar gave the people gifts. And he discussed what is called a ketubah, a marriage contract. The marriage contract later would be considered the word of God. But in the very beginning, it was simply how each other would be treated. The ketubah outlines the way in which they would handle every difficult situation that was before them. How many of you were naive when you were married? The rest of you are liars or you are unmarried. I had no idea that my delicate little flower, when she awoke before the uh, 6 a.m. hour, had at least one thorn on her stems, you know. I didn't know that. She had no idea that her Prince Charming was completely incapable of picking up his underwear. We were blissfully naive. We needed a ketubah, a marriage contract, the word of God that would say we had to care more about each other than ourselves. Why? Because that's how our God taught us and we were in covenant with him before we were in covenant with each other. Are you beginning to see the reason that most marriages are unhappy? Most marriages are unhappy because their spiritual walk is sick and poor and they don't know it. And they have believed the lie that they can be all right with God and wrong with each other. It is not true. It has never been true. It will never be true. Dr. Phil can say it. You can find a Dr. Spock. You can find anybody that wants to stand in opposition to God's word and think they know better. But time will prove them wrong. The next thing that would happen is in Genesis 24, 58 through 60. <clears throat> they called to Rebecca. By the way, the name Rebecca means irresistible. It's a good name. I understand we have a Rebecca here. And she brought a young man in tow. That's an amazing. The name has still got power to this day. Actually, Marco loves Jesus as much as he seems to have affection for Rebecca. So they called Rebecca and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring, hear this phrase, possess the gates of their enemies. Where have you heard anything like that? Who is it that has said, This is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? See, there was once a groom who stood and spoke to the church that was his bride. And he said, you will possess the gates of the enemy. What we see in Jewish history is that they knew through multiplying in the faith they would become a force to be contended with among the nations. And under David and under Solomon, Israel was a premier world power. Of course, the scripture was hinting at something altogether different. When a godly man and a godly woman have a marriage that was arranged by God, the results are offspring that shake the kingdom of hell. In fact, Malachi said the reason that God hates divorce is he was seeking godly offspring. Oh, church, that we could refocus our attention for some time. That maybe we could get back to something as simple as loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, your neighbor as yourself, starting with your spouse. Maybe that would overflow to our children. 
And in the overflow to our children, they would accept nothing less from their spouses. How many generations would it take to win the world? The product Coca-Cola is found in every nation on the planet. I've been in some of the deepest valleys, some of the darkest ravines. I faced witch doctors and cartel. I know what it is to have M16s, AK-47s on that side of the planet, and knives put to my throat. And I have never been anywhere that they did not successfully evangelize the product Coca-Cola. It's less than 150 years old. How is it that the gospel of 2,000 years has not made it to every nation on the planet? It begins with you. It begins with me. And it starts with our feelings about him reflected in how we treat everyone else. That's right where it starts. So what would happen is in this scenario, roll forward one more verse so they can see it. It'd be uh, 2461. Then Rebekah and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Laha Roy, for he was living in the Negev. I don't want to get off subject too much, but where they met was called the Well of the Living One's Vision. Beer Laha Roy. In other words, the very thing that they were acting out would be a vision of someone who was still to come. Church, who is that? Who is the promised son that is waiting on a righteous bride brought by the Holy Spirit? Who is it that has shed his gifts abroad to mankind that we might be known in this world as his? Who is that? Who is it that you have been betrothed to and on the day of the resurrection will be married to? Have you been faithful to him? Is your faithfulness to him as great as your faithfulness to your spouse? Once a match had been found acceptable. Oh, it was exciting. It was an exciting thing. They waited and they couldn't, couldn't wait to get to the place where they actually met. And sometimes big journeys were involved. And um, in Judaism, they leaned on something for this. They said, you know... Our God promised us through Abraham that we would be his people. And then we were enslaved and trapped in Egypt. But he came for us. He came for us through the personage of Moses. And he offered us a new life. That is where we will take what is called the erusion ceremony or the engagement ceremony. In fact, could we go to Exodus 6.6? What would happen is because Moses showed up and he said these words to the Israelites. Let me turn and get there. Every Jewish groom would show up and say these words outside of the young lady's house. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now obviously, if you were talking to a Young Jewish girl, she was not under the yoke of the Egyptians, but he would nevertheless bring her out from under the yoke of her parents, the way of life of her parents. It would forever change. Have you ever seen a marriage where they did not come out from under the yoke of the parents? Where he is still so attached to mama that his wife plays second fiddle? Or where she is so concerned with what her parents think that his every decision is second-guessed by them? 
Jewish marriage started with the foundational element. Once we become a new entity, once you leave their house to come with me, that has forever changed. Started in the garden. King James said, leave and cleave. But this is where the Jews began this. Now, interestingly enough, this is also where the Passover starts. It's where the relationship between Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb and the nation of Israel and those Gentiles grafted into it begins. He is having a Passover meal with them. And they take the first cup and the first cup celebrates their liberation from bondage. Then they get to the second. I will free you from being slaves to them. It's one thing to try to walk in a new faith. It is another thing to put down the power of sin in your life. How many, we won't ask for hands. How many have said, Lord, I will follow you. I love you. You are the Christ. I'll give my life for you. And then have found out that there is sin that is trailing you. You have not been able to put down and you know it's wrong. Jesus Christ didn't just call you to a new way of life. He called you to be blameless, just as God called Abraham. The way this worked for a young Jewish groom is he would say to the bride, I will bring you out and I will free you from the loneliness of an incomplete calling. See, the biblical reason for people to get married is that the man was given a call from God. And that call from God could not be performed, could not be achieved without her. So she was not just a helper, she was indispensable. She was cherished. She was not just subordinate, she was so needed that there was no parallel in all of the globe to your relationship to her. In fact, the very word ezer, which is the word helpmate in Hebrew, means that person which helps you accomplish what you could not do alone. Oh, how many of you actually feel that way about your spouse? See, the way that we feel about our spouses, very often is the way we feel about the Lord. We still love them, but we're leading very much separate lives. I mean, we remember when we made that oath, and yes, we're married. We still, we still have the ring on our finger. And no, we didn't go do anything so obvious as adultery, but our hearts are a little further apart every year. We just kind of exist together. Now, there are many marriages like that in the world because there are many relationships with the Lord like that in the world. They remember when their passion for him once burned bright and hot, but now they're older and wiser, and this is just the way things go, you know? The very basis for marriage was the same basis that liberated Israel from bondage to Egypt, said, I will bring you out and I will free you from loneliness and incompleteness. We'll be joined forever. He goes on to say, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. The Jewish groom would take the third cup and say, in this cup you will have redemption. If there's a price to be paid, sweetheart, I will pay it. If you have some attachment I don't know about, I will break it. If you have some suitor who's waiting for me to leave, I will deal with him. This was the heart of the Jewish groom. It is, if you accept this, we will now be in covenant if we're married or we will shed our blood and it'll be broken. But nothing other than death would separate us. Are you hearing wedding vows in that? 
What an interesting thing because it was this cup that Jesus took and he made a covenant with us. How many of you in this room have ever taken communion? Raise your hand if you have ever taken communion in your life. Then you took that wedding vow. Whether you knew it or not, whether you understood it, that's what you did. Now, when we think of the Lord, it's sometimes abstract, isn't it? I mean, you love him, but you can't see him. You read about him, but you feel as if you can't talk to him. I don't feel that way, but you might. Sometimes it helps to see Jesus with a little skin on him, you know? Like, I don't know, have you ever been to a wedding and been moved? You know, Curtis and Mary are going to have a wedding here soon. Man. Can you imagine that Curtis, Curtis and Mary were standing up here, and he got on a knee, and he said, Oh, sweetheart, life as you know it's about to change. You're going to leave your parental authority. You're going to step out from under slavery in Egypt. I'll redeem you with sacrificial love. How excited would y'all be for them? Curtis invited me to his engagement ceremony. And I videotaped it. And I rarely have ever seen two human beings experience such joy. I mean, enraptured. Timo, am I lying? I mean, Mama was all messed up that day, huh? <laughs> Curtis, Curtis kept biting his lip and <laughs> crying. And you know why? Because that, that's the height of our human experience when we realize that we have an unending covenant kind of love for each other. It's probably best if we get to display that kind of thing to you, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's hard just to imagine it. I could pick anybody. We'll take Justin and Ella. We'll get them to come. Y'all come up here. No, y'all are already married. We should probably pick somebody who's not. Hmm. <laughs> Judah, Sasha, why don't, why don't y'all come up here? And I mean, just as a, as a sermon example for a minute, um, maybe... Maybe we could imagine that Sasha is with Baj and Natalie. Um, Baj, Natalie, why don't y'all come up here? And Judah has now ventured across hell and high water, fighting dragons or whatever else we've always dreamed about. He's climbed the tower. And now... Just like the Jews did in ancient history, he has the opportunity to say something to Sasha. What would you want to say, Judah? Sasha, there are only two things that I can promise you. We will accomplish what the will of God in our generation is, no matter what the cost or sacrifice is. I will love you all the days of my life. I need to be clear, we're, 
Were we just acting or did you have something else planned here? What, what's happening? I'm going to marry Sasha. <laughs> I think you better put the symbol on her finger before somebody else gets the wrong idea. Mom, Dad, is it with your permission that they do this? Oh, my goodness. Y'all give them a hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, now you're going to need to gather yourselves for just a second. How happy do you feel for them? How excited are you to see two young people in love? Perhaps, like when I was engaged to my wife, there is someone who thinks, golly, they're so young, it's tragic. I want to tell you, not out of defense for my son or this beautiful, godly woman, that says more about your relationship with the Lord than you would care to admit. It says that you've become cynical and that you no longer believe that it is possible to walk in holiness. My heart is that people would be renewed today. See, we promised the Lord just like these two have promised, and then we walk poorly. And enough years goes by and we just assume that that's the way that it is. But you wouldn't accept that for them. You wouldn't want that for them. You would expect them to be vibrantly, passionately in love. The Apostle Paul had that kind of heart for the Corinthian church. He said, I promised you to but one husband. Pure. Virtuous. Literally the word is virgin. You need to renew your heart. You need to renew your love for the Lord. If you have competing interest with Him, if your business is as important to you as your walk with the Lord, if the way that you spend your time shows that you value deer hunting as much as you do Jesus Christ, your wife shouldn't put up with it, and I can assure you, your godly husband the living Christ, he will not. One of the things that would happen at this point is had Judah been Jewish, and he's a pork-eating Gentile <laughs> with a Jewish name, had he been Jewish, he would have offered her a glass of wine instead of that ring. And that glass of wine, if she drank it, said, we will, we will share the same cup for eternity. Whatever happens to you will happen to me. Whatever happens to me will happen to you. This is the cup that Jesus held up. And there was a fourth cup to be drunk. And the fourth cup would not be uh, consumed until you got to the actual wedding ceremony. This was just the engagement period, the time of testing, to see if you would remain pure. The fourth cup would be when I take you to be with me. 
This would be when the marriage would actually be consummated. Jesus held up that third cup and he said, I'm going to redeem you with sacrificial acts of love, basically. But we will not yet drink the fourth cup. That comes later with my Father in the kingdom. Church, you are engaged to Jesus Christ. And this is the time when you prove faithful. If she drank the cup like you have drank the cup, then what would happen is they would begin preparing their daily lives. Do you know what the very next thing they would do in Jewish culture? They would become baptized. She would go home and she would go through a ceremony that cleansed her, a brand new fresh start, preparing to be a married woman. He would go home and be baptized, committing him to be a husband. You know why we baptize in the church of the living God? It's to symbolize a total status change. You're no longer a free agent. You're no longer single. You now share the same fate as Jesus Christ, to be crucified with him, to be raised with him. Are you dating God? Are you married to him? Are you cheating on him? If your spiritual walk was a reality television show, would the world love it or would the church love it? The next thing that would happen is she would go taking the gifts from the Shadukan. Many times in the first century, it was simply 10 precious coins. Some cultures, we still exchange coins. Uh, I, I know when we do weddings in Mexico, we often exchange coins. You would take 10 precious coins and Sasha would wear them. And the reason that she would wear them is she would like that engagement ring, want people to know she was betrothed. She would be married soon. Legally, she was bound, but practically she hasn't done it yet. Perhaps this is why in Luke 15, Jesus tells a slightly humorous story about a woman who lost a coin. Can you imagine if she lost the engagement ring tomorrow, how hard she would search? And how we would rejoice when she found it? Jesus said the kingdom of God is like that. And that they rejoice more in the heavenly realms when one lost soul is saved than she would rejoice over that ring or a Jewish woman her coin. You know, John 14, the first few verses said, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. This is what Judah would be doing. In Israel, you lived in, in Sulas. These were family estates. Your family land was handed down from generation to generation, and you were not allowed for another family to occupy that land. You couldn't sell it. It was your inheritance, your tribe's inheritance. So what Judah would do is he would come back to the house, and he would be building on to the house a new dwelling for her and Sasha. For him and Sasha. <laughs> and it'd be so frustrating for him. Because what do you think he's thinking about? The day he gets his bride. But do you know he didn't get to choose that? In Jewish culture, he did not get to choose the day that he went to go get his bride. Because he's building on to my house. And I would be the oldest living family member in the house. So only I could tell him when the construction was up to task. Only the Father would know the day or the hour. Are you hearing me yet? Yes. 
So in Matthew 24, 36, when it says only the Father knows the day or the hour, Jesus is again speaking wedding language. In John 14, 1 through 3, when he says he goes to prepare a place, he's again speaking wedding language. And how about in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells another slightly humorous story about a man who is pledged to be married to 10 women. And some of them were foolish and didn't have oil in their lamp. See, what Sasha would do is she would go back to the Aragina household. She would lock herself away in her room. And she would begin to work on her wedding dress. It was her job and her mother's job, her family's job, to actually make the wedding dress so that she would be radiant on the day that she met her groom. So his job was to build a life that she could join. Her job was to build a character worth joining. That was what was happening. And since she didn't know what day or hour, and he couldn't slip her a note that said what day or hour, because he didn't know, her job was to always be ready. So at nighttime, they would put a lamp in the window, just in case he was coming. Because he would come at a day or hour that she didn't know about, And because he wanted her to know, he would tell his closest friends when his father told him. You know, our God does nothing without revealing it to the prophets. Nothing. Amos says that. And they would blow trumpets and shofars and dance through the streets while they came to get the bride. They would carry her the word for the last part of the Jewish marriage is nesween, and it means to carry. They would carry her to him. The bride would be brought To the husband. Of course, he's looking from a distance, waiting for her to come. And they would meet. And there would be a ceremony there that would change everything. It would last seven days. Seven is one of God's favorite numbers. And in that seven-day union, he would take off something called talit. He would take off a covering that God had given only the man. And it represented the commands of God. Numbers 15.37 told him to wear it. He would wear it every day up until that day. And on that day, he would take off this covering that is a prayer shawl. And they'd put four poles under it. And he would invite Sasha to come stand with him under the covering that God had given them, which was essentially God's word. It was a subtle reminder that only those two stand under the covering. It was a subtle reminder that if you step out from under the covering, you step out from under its protection. When the talit had four poles under it, it became a hopa. Today in Jewish ceremonies, you see hopas. They just have lost the symbolism of what it means very often. And there would be a feast. And in the feast, guests would be invited. And everybody would share the joy of the groom and the bride. What does your life speak? If Jesus Christ showed up, would he find oil in your lamp? Have you lost your coins? That pure symbol of your early devotion, is it still there? In India, they don't do wedding rings. They do a necklace. And it's not uncommon after somebody's been married for a long time that the wife will be cleaning the house or something. Usually fairly difficult. She'll take it off and hang it on the wall because it's heavy. And in their garments, it doesn't exactly, it's not flowing. 
And a mother-in-law will walk in the room and say, did my son marry that nail on the wall or did he marry you? She'll put it back on. Maybe we need an Indian mother-in-law to come remind us of our devotion to Christ. I need you to know something about God's nature. We're going to close soon and some of you will thank God that we're closing. This begins in Exodus 34. Please turn with me there. It might save your life. You hear all of the time that God is loving. You hear all of the time that God is good. You hear all of the time the positive attributes of God and there are no attributes of God that are not positive. And yet there is one attribute of God that is never emphasized because we genuinely do not see it as a positive attribute. In Exodus 34... Look at verse 14. Do not worship any other God for the Lord. That word is Yahweh. For Yahweh, whose name is, what's that word? Is a jealous God. If we say your husband's jealous, we're usually putting him down. God considers jealousy in the right context holy. If your husband is not jealous for your time, that ought to make you sad. If your wife is not jealous for your time, that ought to make you sad. If you're no longer each other's favorite person to be around, that ought to make you sad. And how much more so if the same is true about your relationship with Jesus? His name is jealous. His characteristic is that he envies for you. He burns for you. How much does he love you, you might ask? You know, I'm a pretty good guy just trying to go about my life. He loves you enough that he knew that you were powerlessly trapped in sin. He knew that you were a monstrous sinner. And he proposed to you anyway. Under the condition that when you drank that cup, you would come out from under that yoke. And when you came out from under that yoke, you would be freed from being slave. That his redemptive acts would have effect in your life. And that you would be waiting to be taken to him. Have you accepted the cup or the ring, but you have not made your dress or worn your coins? Oh, church, this is most. How many people have heard the phrase, the church is full of hypocrites? The real church is not full of hypocrites. The institutions are full of hypocrites. The buildings are full of hypocrites. The church of Jesus Christ are those who are pure in their devotion to him. If you've not been pure, the good news is you can be made pure. All that you could see your life honestly. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves with their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make cast idols. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Immediately after the Passover, which is also the engagement ceremony, you cleaned your house. You got baptized. Immediately after you took the light of God's menorah and you went through every room in the house as led by the Father and you found any speck that didn't belong. 
See, as Americans, we're pretty good. Like, if we get nine out of ten, then we're like, <laughs> praise God, I got a B plus. Or now I think we've moved the scale. That's actually an A, nine out of ten. If you can't bring the people up to the standard, just bring the standard down to the people. That's kind of what the church has done. I take full responsibility for it. We pastors have let you down. You're offering lame and crippled sacrifices, and we're praising you for it and telling you it's, it's great. You're a champion. You're wonderful. But if you compare your life to the devotion of a spouse, would you marry you? See, I think God deserves the very best. I think Jesus Christ deserves not a part-time bride and part-time prostitute. If you ever read the book of Hosea and you thought it was talking about somebody else, you need to read it again. God calls unfaithfulness spiritually. And let's go ahead and define that. When he tells you to do anything and you do not do it, he defines that as prostitution. James 4.17 says, He who knows the good that he should do and does not do it, sins. Sins. You say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not doing what my neighbor's doing. We're not even talking about things that you're doing wrong. We're talking about what you're not doing. I tell you what, one day we'll let Judah walk in and say, Sasha, Sasha, I am not running around with other girls. Sasha, I am not doing these things. Do you really think that's what's burdening our heart? Or do you think that he has failed to act in a way that brings love and reassurance and confirmation to her. Is it enough for any of you in here if your spouse simply does not sleep with your neighbor? Is, I mean, is, you're like, oh, I got the best marriage because my wife said no to him. <laughs> well, if you wouldn't accept that, why do we think that the king of kings would? If it sounds harsh, consider it from God's perspective for a moment. He didn't find the best looking bride. He didn't get what Judah's getting. I mean, Sasha is radiant. He went and found one that was covered in sores. One that was unattractive in every way. And when nobody wanted you, when you hated your own life, that's when he betrothed you because he knew that he could make you into something more. Are you letting him? In the book of James, the fourth chapter, I will quote many more scriptures in the last few minutes, but I'm probably only going to turn to two. Three. Turn to three. After this one. James 4. The fourth verse. You adulterous people, it's a good thing he wrote this to uh, lost people. He didn't? Let's see. James 1. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. This is written to the church of his day. This is written to the family of God. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Understand something. When we're chummy with the things the world is chummy with... It is not expressing affection to the world. It's expressing hatred towards God. It's quite literally saying, I don't really want you to free me from that yoke. I don't really want to get out from under that slavery. I like it. I like Egypt better than I like your house. 
This is how the brother of Jesus wrote about devotion to him. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When's the last time you were hated for the sake of Jesus Christ? Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Envies intensely. God is a jealous husband. He wants all of you and is not willing to share you with anyone. He wants you to go to bed thinking about him. He wants you to wake up thinking about him. He wants you to ask him throughout the day what you could do that would please him and catch his eye. Not because you're owning salvation. He's already called you blameless. Now he's asked you to walk in it. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. That sounds so harsh. Remember, it's the brother of Jesus and he's writing to believers. Anybody in here got a sister? Raise your hand, you got a sister. Now, I have a good brother-in-law and he's here with me today. But what would you expect of me if they're on their honeymoon and she calls and said, he's beating me? What would you expect of me? Probably wouldn't expect me to sit on my salvation. This is the brother of Jesus. And he's concerned with your devotion to the king of kings. He says, grieve, mourn, wail. We think those things are done before we're born again. And now that we're born again, it's all over. I would say that you always need to be repenting. I would say that if you look into the mirror that is God's word, you're going to find out that your devotion's not been as pure as you think it has been. And that he'll show you that. Same way that you're pretty sure you're doing just fine with your honey and you're strolling along. And then the longer you talk, you realize, yeah, I guess I... I did leave my toothpaste by the sink and I turned off your alarm and not mine. I thought I was doing just fine until confronted with the truth. If you love her, what do you do? You just ignore it? Or do you make an effort to do something different and ask her to forgive you? Oh, church, it might be time to knock the dust off your covenant. If you come from an ecclesiastical background, You know, I was confirmed in the Lutheran church by a homosexual pastor. I should be honest. I was not confirmed in the Lutheran church. I went through confirmation and passed, and the day before the ceremony, I got into a fight on the stage. So the homosexual pastor refused to confirm me. I didn't meet his standards. I want to tell you, nobody can confirm you into the church of Jesus Christ. Only he can. And you might not know when you're not, but you definitely know when you are. I hope that's not confusing to you. I grew up with a man who was drunk a lot. 
He never thought he was drunk. That's what deception's like. I'm doing just fine with God because you don't know you're not doing just fine with God. But as soon as you get right with God, you realize how wrong you were with Him. That's how that works. It's Holy Ghost sobriety. I would just like to point out that the Beatitudes were to address this situation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why is it a blessing to mourn? Because you've realized your true state. You've looked at Judah and Sasha and you went, I want that towards the Lord and I don't really have it. You've looked at your true state and it's grieving to you. Like, I, I want that. Because that mourning leads to a meekness. By the way, I'm just quoting Matthew 5, 3, 2, 3, and 4. That meekness, meekness is when you finally go, look, I could do anything I want to do. I have the power to do whatever I would like to do. I could go in any direction, but I no longer want to exert that myself. Whatever the Lord tells me to do, that is what I, I want to do because I've been doing it my way and it's not working. And it takes you to the next beatitude that says, I hunger and thirst for righteousness and I will be filled. When you mourn over your position and you're starting to demonstrate meekness, I don't want to go my own way anymore, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it is, that I want. I'll do whatever it takes to have the kind of zeal for Jesus that Judah and Sasha have for each other. There's a man named Dumar. Dumar is a Syrian, not a Syrian. He is a person who is from the country of Syria. And Dumar's not real sure what to think about us crazy, spirit-filled Christians. He likes us. I like him. He speaks with me very frankly, often in profanity. He has the most interesting worldviews. Judah asked him if he would make the ring for him. Now, this, is, this man does this for a living. He was so excited for what was going on in Judah's life, he would not accept money from him. Judah brought all the materials, the man made it, and he wouldn't accept money. You're going to find out that when your passion burns for Jesus, when your passion is for him, the kingdom becomes far less about money and more about who you're impacting. And when you're not impacting people for Jesus, you don't have anything left to do but count dollars. That's why we're not a money-focused church. We want as much of it as it takes to do God's will and don't want any more than it takes that. We want to impact people. I don't want to belabor this. I think you understand where I'm coming from. I love you. I'm thankful that you're here. It's a beautiful day. I'm very proud of my son. I would like to tell you that if you are lonely, if you feel disconnected from the Lord, if you're lonely for a spouse or you are lonely for him, either one. Psalm 68, 6 says, the Lord sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonelies in families and he leads forth the prisoners with singing. You know he doesn't lead forth with singing? Those who think they're just fine by themselves. But if you feel trapped in your sin, if you feel estranged from the living God, if you have not been as faithful to the covenant as he has, if you don't feel a heavenly bliss inside of you when you think of standing before the judgment of God, he wants to set you in his family. He'll engage you again. And he'll give you that cup of redemption again. 
that messes with your theology, then just understand it this way. He's not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the 10,000th chance. He loves you. He burns intensely for you. He used circumstance, people. Dare I say he manipulated you to get you here today because he loves you. He does. Say, God doesn't do that. You didn't know he was jealous either. Imagine what you might learn about the Lord if you decided in advance that you didn't already know everything. He manipulated the Apostle Paul. He put goads in his life. I mean, he poked him, knocked him down, blinded him. He got his attention. What's it going to take to get your attention? This beautiful couple is a great example of youthful passion and zeal that is supposed to accompany a Christian all of their lives. I want to read to you just three scriptures. The first one is Isaiah 54. This will make the point. It's been a while since I preached. I thought I'd preach a couple sermons while I was up here. When you hear me mention Revelation, Matthew, you come this way. Come be just a minute, because I can. In Isaiah 54, look at verse 5. For your maker is your husband. Say it. My maker is my husband. Never look at maker's mark whiskey the same again, will you? For my maker is my husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. Have you ever considered that something about your life was not acceptable to God? But He loves you enough to call you back. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Oh, church. Look at verse 10. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of shalom be removed. You may not be where you're supposed to be with the Lord, but if you're distressed in your spirit over it, He will call you back. He will present you to Himself, the Apostle Paul said, as radiant and spotless and beautiful because He's able to do it. The question is, are you able to have a sober assessment of your own life? Isaiah 62 is the goal. This is what the Lord was always after. Isaiah 62, starting in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. He wants you as beautiful as Sasha will be in her wedding dress. He wants everyone in the room to rise and acknowledge your love of the Lord. He wants the setting to change when you walk in because you're His. Does your love for the Lord become the, the conversation topic 
when you enter the room? Or would nobody even know it exists? The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hespa. My delight is in her. He wants you to have the confidence that he delights in you. If you walk around with the feeling God is angry with you, you can change it. You change it through your repentance and it becomes happy with you. But you will be called Hespa. My delight is in her. And Beulah married. For the Lord will take... For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so your builder, Hebrew here is ben, plurally, will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I got to tell you, when my son came home with a ring, he was grinning from ear to ear. He wasted no time. He said, Dad, can we change everything for tomorrow? You're going to hear a message about a utility belt and a cloak. I said, yes, we can. He got in the car and he drove to see Baj as fast as he could get there, and I hope he didn't run over anybody on the way. Because when he set his desires upon Sasha, when God birthed that in his heart, he didn't want to be denied. He didn't care what he had to fight through. That's how your king feels about you. And he doesn't have to ask anybody's permission except yours. Are you asking people's permission? Do you want to go an acceptable distance in the eyes of your peers? Or do you want to go all out with God? See, that, that's the question before a Christian nation. By the way, I don't believe that most people that say they're Christians are Christians. I prefer to let you prove it to me. If you just thought in your heart, I don't have anything to prove to you. <coughs> Trees are known by their fruit, not by the bitter roots sticking up out of the soil. Our last scripture for the day might be the most important one. This is Revelation 19. There are so many things you might remember today. I figure you'll remember nothing of what I say. What you will probably remember is simply that a really beautiful girl and a mildly attractive young man. I've been ashamed of the way Judas let his body go here recently. I mean, this is... uh, I mean, why would you have 6% body fat if you could have 5.5% body fat, right? It's disgusting. I figure if you didn't remember any other thing, you might remember their expressions. You might remember that young woman's face when she realized, out of everybody on the planet, he picked me. Because that's exactly how you're supposed to feel about the king of the universe and you. I know them. I'm watching him prepare his life for her to join. And I'm watching her prepare her life and her character to join him. I'm watching it. This is what's expected of us. 
And in Revelation 19, we see the culmination of the ages. It starts in verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God. All you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder and shouting. What does it sound like when the heavens are excited? And what does it take to get the heavens excited? Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has... His bride has... Are you ready? <laughs> Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Where did she get it? He gave it to her. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. God lays out for you righteousness for you to walk in. Will you be naked on that day? Are you be wearing what he laid out for you to do? We are not going to read it. But sometime throw away your commentary, burn it. Take a highlighter to the study notes passages of your Bible. Read Revelation 19 and then go to Matthew 22 and ask yourself. When the subjects of the kingdom were invited to the wedding and they wouldn't come. And he went out and he got the blind and the lame, which is you, by the way. And they came. But the king noticed... Why does that person not have their wedding clothes? And he threw them out. It's because he had provided righteous acts for them to do, and they said no. He finishes with the phrase, many are invited, few are chosen. You're here because you've been invited. You've now been informed of what your love is supposed to look like. You've been informed of how to rekindle it. You've been informed of how to build your wedding dress. Only you can say no. If you've already drunk that cup, you've already promised this. You just may have done it in ignorance. We're going to stand to our feet.